So glad that uh, everyone survived the minus double digits from last week. I'm Laurie Schultz. I'll be your moderator today. Uh, the menu today is burgers and fries. Uh, if you're having lunch today, please put $14 in the bowls at your table, two to, uh, uh, $5 for students, and $2 if you're just having coffee. So as you're aware, the format of today's meeting is a 25 to 30 minute presentation followed by lunch, and then the question and answer period will resume at one o'clock. We acknowledge today that the events taking place on, on these lands of the Blackfoot people and the Métis Nation of Alberta Region 3. And we pay respect to the past, present, and future, um, <coughs> sorry, cultural heritage, beliefs, and relationships to the land, and we commit to do our utmost to assist with the efforts to mend and heal past and present injustices. Uh, we'd just like to note that Shaw Spotlight also records the SACPA presentations and uses excerpts of the, uh, any PowerPoints, and uh, they broadcast daily at 6 to 11 a.m. and uh, 4 and 9.30 p.m., and make the presentations available on, um, on YouTube. Today, Bruce Wilson will speak on transitioning to a low carbon future and a new economy. What are the main barriers? Bruce is an engineer and a former GM of Shell and now an independent consultant on the energy transition, including carbon capture and the hydrogen economy. Born and raised in Scotland, Bruce trained as a structural engineer, joining an oil company directly from university. Following an industry downturn, uh, he worked firstly in Africa before traveling to Canada, where he met his wife, Terri Ann, at the uh, 88 Olympics in Calgary. So over the next almost 30 years, uh, they worked and lived around the world, and with the latter half of Bruce's career spent with Shell International. In much of this time, Bruce has supported environmental causes exemplifying the dichotomy between caring for the environment and uh, powering our, our society. Finally dissatisfied with the too gradual pace of Shell's transition to renewable energies, Bruce parted with the, with the company to take more direct action. Bruce is an advocate for the vast potential of emerging low carbon technologies that offer us the opportunity to thrive in this transition. Please join me and welcome and give a warm welcome to Bruce Wilson. Thank you very much, Laurie, and uh, thank you to SACFA for the opportunity to come to Lethbridge to talk to you today. I, I'm looking forward to uh, a, a good discussion. It, this is how I, I see it here, that the, we need to create more uh, discussions around this this very emotive topic and so I'm looking forward to hearing uh, opinions and, and questions in the, in the discussion period so as Laurie said I uh, I came to uh, I came to Canada just before the Olympics I met a girl who was born in Lethbridge and my uh, my in-laws are from a couple of miles south of Barnwell uh, they're, they're retired farmers so I, I, I have although I'm uh, uh, born and raised in Scotland, I have a, a perspective and a, and a great love for Alberta and for Western Canada. Uh, and, and to me, it, uh, it, I, I see um, this as a time of great opportunity. And, and so I want to talk primarily 
about opportunity uh, and in the context of uh, the, the unique challenges of Alberta and with, with the opportunity for an building a new economy of well-being. So a, a little bit of, to, to add to Laurie's, uh, uh, just look at how to advance the slides here. Okay, it's this one, ah yes. So a little bit of context about me. Um, born and raised in Scotland, uh, I decided to study civil engineering at university. Um, so finished my engineering degree and then I was encouraged by, a, by an oil company, well perhaps I should do a master's degree in marine technology, in uh, uh, petroleum related uh, topics. Um, I remember the very first lecture that I went into in civil engineering and our lecturer wrote on the chalkboard, because of the chalkboards back in those days, uh, what is the purpose of civil engineering? And we all looked suitably blank and he wrote it up on the board and he said, harnessing the great forces of nature for the benefit of mankind. And that, that seemed wonderfully inspiring. And that was the thing that motivated me. And you know, getting into the, the oil and gas business, the energy business, that's what I wanted to do. I was, I, the North Sea is, uh, you know, was the was the focus in Scotland, and I wanted to build Eiffel towers and, and put them into the North Sea and let the waves slam against them and see if they stood up. That was my motivation, and I know that many people have different motivations for getting into the business that that they're into. It didn't occur to me at the time, and it's somewhat of an irony, that the great forces of nature uh, that were slamming against my platforms could be harnessed too. The wind and the waves and the tide and all those other things were in our mind at that time, but they, they weren't infused with the kind of uh, urgency that uh, we, we, we see now. And so I carried on my career. I, I was privileged to to travel, to, to live in many different places. As Laurie said, I met my wife in, uh, in Calgary and we embarked on a wonderful adventure. We were all overseas with uh, uh, a variety of companies, laterally with Shell. Um, and that was a privilege because I got to see a lot of different uh, uh, contexts in the world, uh, lives lived in different ways and, and, and different challenges. But uh, you know, with, with the same theme, and I think this is an important thing, we all, wherever we are, we, we want the same out of life. We want the same for our children. We want a great future. We, we enjoy the environment. Uh, we may be engaged in agriculture and want to make sure that we have great produce and, and, and that we, uh, we have a society that cares for each other. I think this is a context we need to keep in mind when we're, we're talking about transitions and times of change that are, you know, we want the same things. But let's talk a little bit. So, so before, I, before I move on, I was a supporter of uh, environmental causes for many years. Um, I think for 25 years I have, uh, I have sponsored different environmental organizations and I'm a living embodiment of that dichotomy that you can have. Of course I support the environment. Of course I care about the future, but this is my job and, and those parallel, parallel uh, sensibilities uh, carried on for many years until I became aware that this was simply not sustainable going forward, that the planet was challenged by the fact that there was too much carbon 
coming into the atmosphere uh, and that the oil and gas industry was a major contributor to that. I had hopes that Shell would change its ways, but that change was happening all too gradually. And ultimately that led to my parting ways with them because I felt the urgency of action and needed to take uh, my own action. So let's talk about why decarbonize. This is my old school globe. I put it out on the snow there because uh, well, it kind of symbolizes there's nothing else out there. This is us. This is what we have. Interesting on the school globe, I was told one time that the thickness of the atmosphere, of our atmosphere, was equivalent to the thickness of two layers of varnish. That was it. it the effective thickness of our atmosphere is 0.15% of the radius of our planet. So it's a little thin skim of air that we breathe. And into that, we, we pour carbon from our daily lives. It's the product of almost everything that we do. Some carbon is beneficial. When it gets to a certain level, it stops being beneficial. It traps too much heat. Uh, and science on this is very clear, and I have read extensively on this, which got me to the place I am where I became concerned that we need to make a change. We need to decarbonize. We need to slow the acceleration of carbon in the air. The fact of the matter is we have a carbon budget. We have a carbon budget for each temperature threshold of global heating. If we want to maintain our temperatures uh, to 1.5 degrees above pre-industrial levels, we can put no more than 500 gigatons of carbon into the air. It lingers for a long time, and so its effects will be there for a very long time. That gives us 10 years, the way we're emitting, and, and that's quite alarming. Alarming still is the fact that, uh, you know, if we want to limit temperature rise to two degrees, we maybe have 20 years, maybe a little bit more. But we should know that we're locked into a temperature increase of at least two degrees, and our Paris commitments, the commitments made in 2015 um, to reduce emissions, lock us into somewhat more than that, you know, 2.5 degrees. So with that increasing temperature comes effects. Now, Canada might be the beneficiary of those effects for, for some time, maybe, maybe not, but we surely know that other places will not be. Other places will be in jeopardy, jeopardy almost immediately and are so now. I, I, uh, my last posting with Shell was in India, in Bangalore, a city 25 years ago that had one million people and now has 11. It is challenged for water, its wells uh, are deeper now by a factor of five than they were. Uh, Northern India is experiencing progressively worsening heat waves over an extended period of time. What we need to recognize is this is not a problem that uh, recognizes any global boundaries whatsoever. This is a problem that we all own. And so, unfortunately, the, the UNEP, United Nations Environmental Program Emissions Gap Report, uh, recently, uh, it's only out in the, in, uh, at the end of last year, said, well, we didn't do a good job in, 20, uh, in the, the tens, the teens. From 2010 to 2019, we, uh, we increased our emissions by one and a half percent every year. And that gives us more to do. It means that if we want to hit a target by 2030, 
we have to reduce by 7.6% every year. That's a challenge. That is uh, uh, something that we are going to strive very hard to do, but I think we can do it. I just want to give you another point of context. I don't, this looks like a game of Candy Crush. It is not. It is from the World Economic Forum's uh, annual risk report. It came out in the last few days. All I want you to look at is the column on the left is 2007. The column on the far right is 2019 or 2020. Um, look at the progression of green. The top five is the, the, the global risks in terms of likelihood. The bottom is the global risks in terms of potential impact. And all you need to take away from this is that the predominance of the risks is now pushing ever more steadily towards environmental risks. Even weapons of mass destruction in terms of impact got bumped to second place because environmental risks, the failure of climate action is seen as you know, far, of far greater consequence and impact. And I want you to keep that in mind. This is why I believe that, that we need to decarbonize. And what I want to do though is First of all, set it in the context of pride. I grew up in Scotland. I grew up in the central belt of Scotland. It's the industrial belt. We built ships and we mined coal. Uh, Glasgow, the closest city to me, built its, uh, built its wealth on the tea trade and uh, shipbuilding the fastest clippers in the world to, to travel to India. I understand what pride is, what the pride of culture is, of achievement, of, of technological advancement. Picture on the right is Turner Valley, the first well in Alberta. There's a huge culture of pride here, a huge culture of innovation. This is 100 years, less, you know, just over 100 years. And that culture of innovation is strong. The pride of pulling yourself up by your bootstraps in the, the, the most difficult conditions, the most difficult geography and climate. Uh, so I understand the context of pride. I understand legacy. And what I'm proposing to you is that there's the potential for a new legacy if we have the vision to move forward. Now, a lot of people will say, okay, where are the jobs moving forward into this new economy? We're beginning to create jobs. This is the North Sea. Before you had platforms, now you have wind turbines springing up everywhere. There is huge potential in jobs there. It's, it's uh, again, harnessing the great forces of nature for the benefit of humankind. And it is happening at a, an amazing pace. Not quick enough, but it, but it is happening. There are other amazing kind of moonshots. This is a Vanpa. This is about 200 kilometers southwest of Las Vegas. And all those mirrors there are shining the sun on a molten salt uh, cores that are on top of pillars. Um, they are basically taking superheated salt and using it to, to turn steam generators. Incredible technology, which even as we speak is being superseded and is facing cost pressure because of the, the steady decrease in the cost of photovoltaic cells and other solar systems. You know, the, the, the pace of change is, is quite incredible. But what I want to talk to you about it is hydrogen, because I think this is the most relevant to Alberta. We already have a hydrogen economy in Alberta. 
Um, and, in, and globally, it's a $100 billion business. Hydrogen, at the moment, is produced from uh, the reformation of, of methane. And we use it in, in a variety of different ways. We use it as feedstock in refining. We use it to, to make ammonia, to manufacture uh, fertilizers. So we know how to do this. But the fact of the matter is that, that hydrogen is, first of all, I should say it is an energy carrier, an energy vector. It is not an energy in itself. But it is the, the connector for all other potentialities. And, and I believe that this is something where, uh, this is something that Alberta should focus on because we can use it for our industry. It has a high heat of combustion, so actually combusting hydrogen uh, in, instead of natural gas can give us the heat that we need for making steel, for making glass, for making uh, ceramics. Um, we can use it in mobility um, for trucks, mostly for the, for the larger trucks and, and you know, allow the battery electric vehicles to dominate the, the domestic or the, the, the personal transport, whereas hydrogen is a tremendous option for, the, uh, for heavier vehicles. We can use it in, in power and heat. We can use it to resolve the challenges of intermittency of wind. Many people say, well, the, the sun doesn't always shine and the wind doesn't always blow. It's true. Um, but by storing energy with hydrogen and giving it back through fuel cells at a, at a stage when you know, we're not generating power is a way to do it, is a, is a way to, to smooth out that curve. It's a way to balance the grid. We can combust hydrogen even in your domestic boilers when you take a shower. There are companies already in the United Kingdom developing the technology for domestic boilers that will run on 100% natural gas all the way to a blend with hydrogen up to 100% hydrogen. And in fact, it is mandated in the UK that all new housing developments should not be powered by fossil fuels, that they should be powered by some variant of that, whether hydrogen or electricity. So it has uses in shipping. Aviation is, is a stretch, chemicals. But what I want to say to our industry leaders is that if we could use green hydrogen, hydrogen that's not generated from uh, methane reformation, but instead is, is simply generated from the electrolysis of water. You put electrodes into water, you get hydrogen evolution. That will help depress or decrease the carbon intensity of our industries. And this is the kind of, of industry that we need to focus on right now. It is a recognizable analog to the kind of jobs that people have already. People in the oil and gas industry will recognize this and say, okay, I understand this. This is about something I already know. And so bolting on that technology to what we already do is a way for us to go forward to make preparations for the future that, that we know will come. And, and the future, I understand that it's uncertain, but you're going to see, we will see a gradual erosion of the power of the oil and gas industry simply because people will move to other things. They will divest from that and if Alberta is not prepared, uh, there will be that job gap. There will be that uh, vast gulf between 
what could have been and, and what actually happened. And so giving some examples of that, this is Nikola. This is the other part of Tesla. Elon Musk and the, and the CEO of Nikola, they, they, they kind of spar back and forth. Elon Musk saying, well, batteries are the thing. And uh, you know, Nikola says, well, no, for trucking, hydrogen is the thing. This is a hydrogen truck. It's, it's fueled entirely with green hydrogen. Um, and this is not just a prototype, this is happening. They have a plant in Arizona, uh, for example, Anheuser-Busch, uh, that, that makes um, your, your, uh, your bud beer. They have uh, contracted to buy 800 of these units. And the, the Norwegian company NEL has contracted to make hydrogen generation stations all around the US to support that logistical exercise. So you will, you will have at one time, the only, the only carbon that's gonna be associated with your bud is gonna be the, the carbonation in the, in the drink itself. <laughs> but this is the kind of thing that Alberta can do. This is the kind of thing that Alberta can embrace. Hydrogen will give you that uh, opportunity to move your product zero carbon. If this is generated, if the hydrogen is generated from green sources, it will give you the opportunity to move it with a zero carbon impact. And I think that's exciting. And I, I, I want you to be optimistic and, and excited about the, the, the possibilities here. Maybe the way the people in Orkney are, I don't know if you know where Orkney is, but it's one of the islands off the north of Scotland. Uh, and they have embraced the hydrogen economy. They have uh, uh, wind turbines there. They have tidal power. This is showing uh, a tidal power unit off of Kirkwall, which is their biggest town. Um, but their islands, they're, they're, they're generating uh, power from wind. But, you know, in, at nighttime, they have all this excess power. What to do with it? Well, they, they generate hydrogen, green hydrogen, and then they're using that to power schools. They're using it to, um, they're storing it, they're transporting it, they're powering ferries with it, vehicles. Uh, it, it's a vision that they embraced. They said, we can do this, and this is great. You know, we have this technology. Let's, you know, let's do it. Let's deliver it. And I think this is the kind of vision that Alberta needs. They need to see the potential, embrace the potential, understand that change is coming. Uh, see, what steps do we need to put in place for the next 10, 15 years such that as the oil and gas industry is inevitably declining, we have industries like hydrogen, which are durable, which will go forward, which will power our societies. They may power our agriculture if we have concentrated agriculture or greenhouses such as the greenhouse just outside Coaldale, the, uh, the whole leaf. Uh, there's tremendous opportunity here if we embrace it. Uh, we need the legislation in place. We need the encouragement from the government to do that. But it's there. And it's exportable, too. You know, this is a truck with a hydrogen unit, and it's coming off a hydrogen power ferry. Again, you know, I'm looking at analogs in Scotland. So there's great opportunity. But it has to happen in the context of fairness. It has to happen in the context of justice. This is the you know, sustainable development goals here where we say we want change, but we cannot have change at all costs. We have to have change that is, uh, that is fair, is equitable, is global. And, and this is why you know, questions that have uh, uh, been posed to me before say, well, why should Canada do 
anything, you know, we, we don't have a big footprint here. It's because we are global leaders and we need to take leadership around these goals that everybody can get behind these. They're kind of hard to see there, but no poverty, zero hunger, decent work, economic growth, uh, life below water, peace and justice, etc., sustainable cities. These are things that we need to have. And this all together, this movement to a new economy has to happen uh, fairly, equitably. It's called a just transition. There are even guidelines for it. This is from the International Labour Organization. Guidelines for a just transition towards environmentally sustainable economies. Development should be met without compromising the ability of future generations. We need decent work, poverty eradication, and environmental sustainability. Those are the challenges. How are we meeting them? This is Ireland. How Ireland did it was they had a citizens' assembly. They said, we need to get people aligned. We need to get people on board. We need to have people agree with what we're doing. They, they randomly selected 99 people from interviews and knocking on doors and whatever and presented the case to them, and it was powerful. It was powerful because it aligned everybody around a common path. These, these 99 people deliberated on a range of different issues, uh, and one of them was climate change. And they, they said, you know, how do we do this? How do we do this in a way that's fair? How do we, what do we prioritize? What's important to us? Yeah? And I, I, I think that's interesting. And I'm going to actually pose a question to you from the Citizens' Assembly, a question that was given to them. And, and I, would, I would like you to think about it. I, I'm going to leave my email address. And I, I would love to hear your take on that. And I'd like to hear your take on it too during uh, questions, uh, because I, I, I think it's important. But the UK Climate Assembly, the Citizens' Assembly, is 110 people. It was done a little more. Uh, it was selected by a computer. Uh, they didn't knock on doors. But uh, the same way, they're sitting down as we speak, I think this weekend, and they are talking uh, in, a, in a rational way, hearing all sorts of opinions about what do we do? What do we prioritize? What's important to us? You know, an economy of well-being, everybody needs to be heard. New Zealand, well-being budget. <coughs> GDP is a very blunt instrument, gross domestic product, measuring the productivity, the well-being of a society by that, that raw measure. It was, uh, they, they came up with that in, the uh, I think, the 20s or the 30s. It no longer is fit for purpose. We need to have societies the success of society measured by different metrics, you know, because product doesn't recognize who is earning that product, who, who's making the money, what the divide is. So New Zealand, for the first time, May last year, they set a well-being budget. They said, how can it be that our development, our growth is, is double digits? How can it be double digits and yet we have the highest instance, or one of the highest incidences of uh, violence against women, domestic violence, child poverty, children going to bed hungry. How can we do that? Is that success? So they took a look at what really is success. Yeah? And, and I, I would like to hear that from you in terms of what is success. It is in, in a raft of different things uh, where we are making sure that uh, there is an equitable distribution of opportunity. Uh, and, and going into a new transition, we need to embrace that opportunity and understand 
the, the, the many different things that it means. Um, doing no harm to the environment. Uh, jobs with meaning, creating jobs with meaning. I think you see, and if you have conversations, you will understand that people are striving for more meaning. I'm striving for more meaning. I left my job because I, I needed that meaning. I, I needed to have a purpose that was, was greater than simply you know, producing oil and gas and, and going in that very linear fashion. I, I see that there's a lot of work to do and I have committed myself in the 2020s, this decade of action, I've committed myself to 10 years of trying to serve that purpose. And perfectly, I'm, you know, I get many things wrong, but uh, I will try my best to understand what it is that we need to do to, to bring meaning uh, into our lives. There, there are so many ways to do this, and I would recommend that we have a citizen's assembly in Canada to deliberate on those very challenges, that we take it to the people, we understand what people want, we understand what the ordinary people want out of life, and we ask our government to set a well-being budget on that basis. What do we prioritize? Who do we prioritize? There are so many challenges in terms of you know, women's rights or, in, or indigenous rights, people in remote communities who find it challenging to, to uh, you know, even get around. Uh, so there are a, a raft of things that maybe we'll get into in, in question time, but, but I don't have time to talk about here. I'm gonna leave you though with this question. Acknowledging the realities of climate change and that it's happening now, how can the federal and provincial governments make Canada a leader in tackling climate change? And, and to give you some focus on that, think about the key center, uh, sectors, energy, transport, agriculture, waste, but really anything. This is a topic, this is the lens through which we need to see everything going forward. So I, I will be uh, interested to hear your responses on that. Thank you very much.